Part 2, Chapter 1 of The Arrow of Gold, A Story Between Two Notes, by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part 2, Chapter 1. Sometimes I wonder yet whether Mills wished me to oversleep myself or not, that is, whether he really took sufficient interest to care. His uniform kindliness of manner made it impossible for me to tell, and I hardly dare remember my own feelings. Did I care? The whole recollection of that time of my life has such a peculiar quality that the beginning and the end of it are merged in one sensation of profound emotion, continuous and overpowering, containing the extremes of exaltation, full of careless joy and of an invincible sadness like a daydream. The sense of all this having been gone through as if in one great rush of imagination is all the stronger in the distance of time because it had something of that quality even then, of fate unprovoked, of events that didn't cast any shadow before. Not that those events were in the least extraordinary. They were in truth commonplace. What to my backward glance seems startling and a little awful is their punctualness and inevitability. Mills was punctual. Exactly at a quarter to twelve he appeared under the lofty portal of the Hotel de Louvre with his fresh face, his ill-fitting grey suit, and enveloped in his own sympathetic atmosphere. How could I have avoided him? To this day I have a shadowy conviction of his inherent distinction of mind and heart far beyond any man I have ever met since. He was unavoidable, and of course I never tried to avoid him. The first sight on which his eyes fell was a Victoria pulled up before the hotel door, in which I sat with no sentiment I can remember now but that of some slight shyness. He got in without a moment's hesitation. His friendly glance took me in from head to foot, and, such was his peculiar gift, gave me a pleasurable sensation. After we had gone a little way, I couldn't help saying to him with a bashful laugh, You know, it seems very extraordinary that I should be driving out with you like this. He turned to look at me, and, in his kind voice, You will find everything extremely simple, he said, so simple that you will be quite able to hold your own. I suppose you know that the world is selfish, I mean the majority of the people in it, often unconsciously, I must admit, and especially people with a mission, with a fixed idea, with some fantastic object in view, or even with only some fantastic illusion. That doesn't mean that they have no scruples, and I don't know that at this moment I myself am not one of them. That, of course, I can't say, I retorted. I haven't seen her for years, he said, and in comparison with what she was then, she must be very grown up by now. From what we heard from Mr. Blunt, she had experiences which would have matured her more than they would teach her. There are, of course, people that are not teachable. I don't know that she is one of them. But as to maturity, that's quite another thing. Capacity for suffering is developed in every human being worthy of the name. Captain Blunt doesn't seem to be a very happy person, I said. He seems to have a grudge against everybody. People make him wince. The things they do, the things they say, he must be awfully mature. Mills gave me a sidelong look. It met mine of the same character, and we both smiled without openly looking at each other. 
At the end of the Rue du Rome, the violent, chilly breath of the mistral enveloped the Victoria in a great widening of brilliant sunshine without heat. We turned to the right, circling at a stately pace, about the rather mean obelisk which stands at the entrance to the Prado. "'I don't know whether you are mature or not,' said Mills humorously, "'but I think you will do. "'You tell me,' I interrupted, "'what is really Captain Blunt's position there?' and I nodded at the alley of the Prado opening before us between the rows of the perfectly leafless trees. Thoroughly false, I should think. It doesn't accord either with his illusions or his pretensions, or even with the real position he has in the world. And so what between his mother and the general headquarters and the state of his own feelings, he... He is in love with her, I interrupted again. That wouldn't make it any easier. I'm not at all sure of that. But if so, it can't be a very idealistic sentiment. All the warmth of his idealism is concentrated upon a certain American Catholique gentilhomme. The smile which for a moment dwelt on his lips was not unkind. At the same time, he has a very good grip of the material conditions that surround, as it were, the situation. What do you mean? That Doña Rita, the name came strangely familiar to my tongue, is rich, that she has a fortune of her own. Yes, a fortune, said Mills, but it was Allegra's fortune before. And then there is Blunt's fortune, he lives by his sword. And there is the fortune of his mother, I assure you, a perfectly charming, clever and most aristocratic old lady with the most distinguished connections. I really mean it, she doesn't live by her sword, she... she lives by her wits. I have a notion that those two dislike each other heartily at times. Here we are. The Victoria stopped in the side alley, bordered by the low walls of private grounds. We got out before a wrought-iron gateway which stood half open, and walked up a circular drive to the door of a large villa of a neglected appearance. The mistral howled in the sunshine, shaking the bare bushes quite furiously, and everything was bright and hard. The air was hard, the light was hard, the ground under our feet was hard. The door at which Mills rang came open almost at once. The maid who opened it was short, dark and slightly pockmarked. For the rest, an obvious femme de chambre and very busy, she said quickly, Madame has just returned from her ride, and went up the stairs, leaving us to shut the front door ourselves. The staircase had a crimson carpet. Mr. Blunt appeared from somewhere in the hall. He was in riding breeches and a black coat with ample square skirts. This get-up suited him, but it also changed him extremely by doing away with the effect of flexible slimness he produced in his evening clothes. He looked to me not at all himself, but rather like a brother of the man who had been talking to us the night before. He carried about him a delicate perfume of scented soap. He gave us a flash of his white teeth and said... It is a perfect nuisance we have just dismounted. I will have to lunch as I am, a lifelong habit of beginning her day on horseback. She pretends she is unwell unless she does. I dare say when one thinks there has hardly been a day for five or six years that she didn't begin with a ride. That's the reason she is always rushing away from Paris, where she can't go out in the morning alone. Here, of course, it's different, and as I too am a stranger here, I can go out with her. Not that I particularly care to do it. 
These last words were addressed to Mills, specially with the addition of a mumbled remark, It's a confounded position. Then, calmly to me, with a swift smile, We've been talking of you this morning. You are expected with impatience. Thank you very much, I said, but I can't help asking myself what I am doing here. The upward cast in the eyes of Mills, who was facing the staircase, made us both, Blunt and I, turn around. The woman of whom I had heard so much, in a sort of way in which I had never heard a woman spoken of before, was coming down the stairs, and my first sensation was that of profound astonishment at this evidence that she really did exist. And even then the visual impression was more of colour in a picture than of the forms of actual life. She was wearing a wrapper, a sort of dressing gown of pale blue silk, embroidered with black and gold designs round the neck and down the front, lapped round her and held together by a broad belt of the same material. Her slippers were of the same colour, with black bows at the instep. The white stairs, the deep crimson of the carpet and the light blue of the dress made an effective combination of colour to set off the delicate carnation of that face which, after the first glance given to the whole person, drew irresistibly your gaze to itself by an indefinable quality of charm beyond all analysis, and made you think of remote races, of strange generations, of the faces of women sculpted on immemorial monuments and of those lying unsung in their tombs. While she moved downward from step to step with slightly lowered eyes, there flashed upon me suddenly the recollection of words heard at night, of Allegra's words about her, of there being in her something of the women of all time. At the last step she raised her eyelids, treated us to an exhibition of teeth as dazzling as Mr. Blunt's and looking even stronger. And indeed as she approached us she brought home to our hearts, but after all I'm speaking only for myself, a vivid sense of her physical perfection in beauty of limb and balance of nerves, and not so much of grace, probably, as of absolute harmony. She said to us, I am sorry I kept you waiting. Her voice was low-pitched, penetrating, and of the most seductive gentleness. She offered her hand to Mills very frankly as to an old friend. Within the extraordinarily wide sleeve, lined with black silk, I could see the arm, very white, with a pearly gleam in the shadow. But to me she extended her hand with a slight stiffening, as it were a recoil of her person, combined with an extremely straight glance. It was a finely shaped, capable hand. I bowed over it, and we just touched fingers. I did not look then at her face. Next moment she caught sight of some envelopes lying on the round, marble-topped table in the middle of the hall. She seized one of them with a wonderfully quick, almost feline movement, and tore it open, saying to us, Excuse me, I must. Do go into the dining room. Captain Blunt, show the way. Her widened eyes stared at the paper. Mr. Blunt threw one of the doors open, but before we passed through it, we heard a petulant exclamation, accompanied by a childlike stamping with both feet, and ending in a laugh which had in it a note of contempt. The door closed behind us, we had been abandoned by Mr. Blunt. He had remained on the other side, possibly to soothe. The room in which we found ourselves was long, like a gallery, and ended in a rotunda with many windows. It was long enough for two fireplaces of red, polished granite. 
a table laid out for four occupied very little space. The floor, inlaid in two kinds of wood in a bizarre pattern, was highly waxed, reflecting objects like still water. Before very long, Doña Rita and Blunt rejoined us, and we sat down around the table, but before we could begin to talk, a dramatically sudden ring at the front door stilled our incipient animation. Doña Rita looked at us all in turn, with surprise and, as it were, with suspicion. How did he know I was here, she whispered after looking at the card which was brought to her. She passed it to Blunt, who passed it to Mills, who made a faint grimace, dropped it on the tablecloth and only whispered to me, A journalist from Paris. He has run me to earth, said Don Eurita. One would bargain for peace against hard cash if these fellows weren't always ready to snatch at one's very soul with the other hand. It frightens me. Her voice floated mysterious and penetrating from her lips, which moved very little. Mills was watching her with sympathetic curiosity. Mr. Blunt muttered, Better not make the brute angry. For a moment, Doña Rita's face, with its narrow eyes, its wide brow and high cheekbones, became very still. Then her colour was a little heightened. Oh, she said softly, let him come in. He would be really dangerous if he had a mind, you know, she said to Mills. The person who had provoked all those remarks, and as much hesitation as though he had been some sort of wild beast, astonished me on being admitted, first by the beauty of his white head of hair, and then by his paternal aspect and the innocent simplicity of his manner. They laid a cover for him between Mills and Doña Rita, who quite openly removed the envelope she had brought with her to the other side of her plate. As openly, the man's round china-blue eyes followed them in an attempt to make out the handwriting of the addresses. He seemed to know, at least slightly, both Mills and Blunt. To me, he gave a stare of stupid surprise. He addressed our hostess. Resting. Rest is a very good thing, upon my word. I thought I would find you alone, but you have too much sense. Neither man nor woman has been created to live alone. After this opening, he had all the talk to himself. It was left to him pointedly, and I verily believe that I was the only one who showed an appearance of interest. I couldn't help it. The others, including Mills, sat like a lot of deaf and dumb people. No, it was even something more detached. They sat rather like a very superior lot of waxworks, with the fixed but indetermined facial expression, and with that odd air wax figures have of being aware of their existence being but a sham. I was the exception, and nothing could have marked better my status of a stranger, the completest possible stranger in the moral region in which those people lived, moved, enjoying or suffering their incomprehensible emotions. I was as much of a stranger as the most hopeless castaway stumbling in the dark upon a hut of natives and finding them in the grip of some situation appertaining to the mentalities, prejudices and problems of an undiscovered country, of a country of which he had not even had one single clear glimpse before. It was even worse in a way. It ought to have been more disconcerting, for, pursuing the image of the castaway blundering upon the complications of an unknown scheme of life, it was I, the castaway, who was the savage, the simple innocent child of nature. Those people were obviously more civilised than I was. 
They had more rites, more ceremonies, more complexity in their sensations, more knowledge of evil, more varied meanings to the subtle phrases of their language. Naturally, I was still so young, and yet I assure you that just then I lost all sense of inferiority. And why? Of course the carelessness and the ignorance of youth had something to do with that, but there was something else besides. Looking at Doña Rita, her head leaning on her hand, with her dark lashes lowered on the slightly flustered cheek, I felt no longer alone in my youth. That woman of whom I had heard these things I have set down with all the exactness of unfailing memory, that woman was revealed to me young, younger than anybody I had ever seen, as young as myself, and my sensation of my youth was then very acute revealed with something peculiarly intimate in the conviction, as if she were young exactly in the same way in which I felt myself young, and that therefore no misunderstanding between us was possible, and there could be nothing more for us to know about each other. Of course, this sensation was momentary, but it was illuminating. It was a light which could not last, but it left no darkness behind. On the contrary, it seemed to have kindled magically somewhere within me a glow of assurance, of unaccountable confidence in myself, a warm, steady and eager sensation of my individual life beginning for good there, on that spot, in that sense of solidarity, in that seduction. End of Part 2, Chapter 1